1: And when I... Hello listeners and welcome to Ohio Mysteries You're listening to Daughter of the Broader Skies An original by the singer-songwriter Gretchen Pluss Gretchen is our featured Ohio musical artist this week So stick around to the end of the podcast So we can tell you a little bit more about her And let you hear the entire song But right now, stoke that campfire We've got a new Ohio mystery to share I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our researcher and storyteller, Paula Schleiss, whose journalism career included some 30 years at the Akron Beacon Journal.
2: Hi, everyone. Tonight's story has some real twists and turns. It begins with an abduction witnessed by several people who felt helpless to stop it, followed by ransom demands from a pair of voices on the phone and communications through a newspaper-classified ad. There's the sudden shooting death of a suspect, the discovery of a long-buried skeleton. And when authorities finally got an answer they had been seeking for 40 years, it only revealed more questions. And it all begins with Margaret Celeste Dodd. She was born Margaret Celeste Horan and raised in Akron's North Hill neighborhood by John and Evelyn Horan. Her family called her Margie, She was a pretty brunette. Those who knew her described her as shy. She and her three brothers attended Catholic elementary and high schools, and she spent two years as an education major at the University of Akron before falling in love with her college roommate's brother, Julian Kent Dodd. The pair were married in 1972. Her father, John Horne, told an Akron Beacon Journal reporter I never knew her so happy as after that marriage. Time and again, she would tell me how in love she was and how happy she was with her marriage. They didn't have all the money in the world, but they were friends and buddies, as well as husband and wife. In 1975, Margie and her husband Kent moved to the area of Beckley, West Virginia. Now, if you're from Ohio headed southeast, good chance you've stopped in Beckley for your first big break, filling up on gas, getting lunch or shopping at the Tamarack. The couple settled next door to that well-known traveler's rest area in a town called Shady Spring. Kent taking a job as a hydraulic mechanic, Margie working as a bank teller. The year after moving to West Virginia, Margie and Kent tried to grow their family. Sadly, the little boy Margie gave birth to, he was named Julian Kent Dodd for his father, died after just four days. Margie and Kent, they lived a low-risk lifestyle, not at all the kind of people whose habits or routines would have put them in harm's way. So it was a true mystery as to how events happened The night of September 7, 1977, Margie was driving to her home in Shady Spring from her job at Cardinal Bank in Beckley, a simple 12-mile route, when she pulled her brand-new green Chevrolet Chevette into a closed Amoco service station in Beaver. Another vehicle pulled in behind hers. A man named John Cole was visiting his father nearby, and as they were saying goodbye on the family porch, they heard screaming. They thought some kids were playing around, but a moment later, the man was pulling off his father's street when he came within sight of the gas station. It was too dark to identify the assailant or the make of the two cars in the lot, but he saw enough to disturb him. A skinny white man in jeans and a dark jacket was standing outside one of the cars, leaning into the back seat. A woman inside was screaming. The witness had his own wife and two children with him, so he turned around, raced back to his father's house, and called police. State troopers were nearby. When they arrived at 8.45 p.m., it was within minutes of when the altercation had taken place. They found Margie's still-warm car and a few items scattered on the ground. But Margie, the second car, and the suspects were gone. Dozens joined in a search of back roads and hills over the next couple of days. The community was unnerved. There had been three abduction rapes in the previous ten months. A co-worker of Margie's told police that the day before, A young white male in a green compact car had tried following her from the bank parking area. But police said they didn't think Margie's case was connected and told reporters they had few clues to follow. Just one week after Margie's kidnapping, police were telling reporters if nothing turned up soon, officers would have to be pulled from the case for other duties. The family was convinced the police weren't doing all they could. They set up a base of operations at an aunt's house and started their own investigation, making expensive long-distance calls, circulating Margie's picture to nationwide citizens' band radio groups, taking trips to Beckley to collect more information, and even seeking help from psychics. The state police aren't keeping me informed at all, John Horan said. I don't want to be involved in every little particular of the case, but I'm her father, and I don't want to be treated like the little unimportant stepchild in this. Police insisted they had done all they could. My goodness, a department spokesman told a reporter, we'd like to find this woman and would like to find her well. We all have wives and families too, and know what this must be like. Margie's husband, Ken, offered a $1,000 reward, hoping to loosen someone's tongue. But nothing came of it. No one knew why Margie had pulled off the road into that gas station parking lot. The station had closed nearly an hour earlier, and there were no employees about. But her husband thought she might have actually been abducted back at the Raleigh Mall, where her bank was and forced to drive by one man while one or more co-abductors followed in a second car. There was no doubt the incident affected the community. Newspapers reported sales of mace went up dramatically after Margie was taken. Then, on September 25, three weeks after Margie vanished, her parents in Akron got a phone call. Two distinct male voices told Margie's parents They were holding her for ransom. There was a man speaking in what they thought was a West Virginia accent who called himself Joe Bob and a voice belonging to a Jimmy that sounded African American. That Jimmy, as we will soon learn, is James Hendry of Akron. Hendry had a rap sheet. Back in the early 60s when he was 20 years old and on furlough from the Army, he made a habit of climbing into cabs, directing the driver to a dark street, then threatening his victim with a makeshift weapon or by faking he had a gun. That criminal career got him $83 and 10 years in jail. He was freed on parole three months before Margaret Dodd disappeared. Henry's family, including his brother George Henry, who was a Summit County deputy sheriff, thought he'd turned a corner. His prison record was clean, and after his release, he found a steady job at the soap manufacturer Gojo Industries on Cuyahoga Street. He lived with an aunt and an uncle on Roslyn Avenue. But Henry is about to meet a violent end. Here's what happened. The two men who called the horns said they were holding Margie in a West Virginia cabin near a place they called Four Points that she was being held by a friend named Peter and Peter's wife, and that they wanted $10,000 in exchange for her. When John Horne asked the caller to describe his daughter's clothing, the caller said she was wearing funny shoes. An FBI check revealed that Margie was wearing a pair of shoes with high cork soles, which convinced the family the call was authentic. There were several more calls throughout that week. And finally, the men explained an elaborate plan that called for the Horns to take out a classified ad in the Akron Beacon Journal when they had the $10,000 ready. On October 3rd, 1977, the Beacon Journal published a three-line classified ad that read simply, Margie, please come home. We love you. That night... Margie's father, John Horn, went to Perkins Square Park at Bookdale and Bowery Streets in Akron. He was supposed to wait for a black man to approach him and ask for twenty dollars. That man would then take Horn to meet Joe Bob, hand over the ten thousand dollars, and receive the address where he could find his daughter, who was supposed to have been transported back to Akron. As Horn sat on a park bench, he saw a black man approaching. But the man walked around a bit aimlessly for 15 minutes, then left without speaking. The FBI was staking out the scene. Fearing their daughter's abductor had spotted those agents and been scared off, the Horns ran more classified ads, hoping to reestablish contact. The new ad said, Joe Bob, please call. We miss Margie. A week after that park visit, the Horns got another call. Again, they spoke with two different voices, one of which we know to be James Hendry. New arrangements were made for that Tuesday evening. For James Hendry, that Tuesday was pretty routine. He left the Roslyn Avenue home where he was living and walked to work at dawn. He finished his shift and returned home around 5 p.m. Then went with his aunt to another family member's home to fix her furnace. They returned home about 7 p.m., after which Henry told his aunt he was going to walk to a drugstore on Copley Road to purchase a money order. Just before 10 p.m. that night, Henry wandered into the Elbow Grill on Main Street. The bartender said he had a blank stare on his face and that he used the restroom and left. The plane called for John Horne to pick up Henry on a designated road at 10 p.m., but this time an FBI agent pretended to be Horan. The agent spotted Hendry on the side of the street, pulled over, and Hendry got in. What Hendry didn't see was that a second FBI agent was lying on the floor of the back seat, that the car was being tracked, and that the conversation in the car was being transmitted to a van with other agents. Hendry was telling the driver that FBI agent pretending to be John Horan, that Margie Dodd was in a Volkswagen with West Virginia license plates in the company of a man with long, straggly hair and his three children. Henry directed the driver through a long, undulating route to Snyder Avenue in the city of Barberton. That's where, as one FBI agent would later say in his report, things went to hell. Henry threatened the driver, saying he had a .357 Magnum in his pocket and that he was going to blow his head off if he didn't hand over the $10,000 ransom. The agent that was hiding on the backseat floor heard the threat and opened fire. Three of four shots through the passenger back seat found their mark, killing Henry. There was no weapon on Henry. He was using his old M.O. of faking a gun. When all was said and done, the FBI was pretty convinced that Henry was just trying to take advantage of the situation, that he wasn't involved in Margie's disappearance, and that he quite possibly had been faking the second voice, the one of Joe Bob. If that were true, then Margie's killers were still out there. Margaret Dodd was eventually declared legally dead, and her parents died without knowing what happened to her. In 1993, deer hunters on Bolt Mountain in West Virginia's Raleigh County stumbled across a human skull. Police responded to their call, searched the area, and found more bones, which were proved to be from a Caucasian female. The skeleton suggested she lived in another era. There was a dirt-covered blue sweater. Gray slacks flared at the bottom and high-heeled clogs, a throwback to the 1970s. They also found a distinctive ring. Raleigh County seat is Beckley. It's never been fully explained how authorities failed to connect the ring, the clothes, the skeleton to the woman who was kidnapped in that same area just 16 years earlier, but they didn't. Over the next 24 years, the locals would come to know this unfortunate soul only as the woman on Bolt Mountain. The body had been dumped in an abandoned mine in an area the miners used as their trash dump. There wasn't much to suggest who her killer might have been. It seemed obvious whoever put her there knew the area and was familiar with the mine. From time to time, Raleigh County investigators took a peek at the case. They tried to match the skeleton to other missing women in the area, Tammy Daniel of Beckley and Susan Roop of Fayette County, but those women were ruled out. In 2004, forensic experts tried to coax a name from a minuscule DNA sample they had, but it had degraded over the years and the results were inconclusive. And so the files went back into the archives. In 2017, the Raleigh County Sheriff's Department took yet another look. Following through on a campaign promise, Sheriff Scott Van Meter threw new money and manpower into solving cold cases. And he named the woman on Bolt Mountain as a priority. Captain Larry Lilly was charged with searching for new evidence, and that small DNA sample that was inconclusive before, it had been saved from that failed attempt in 2004. But the technology now had improved a lot over the past 15 years, and so the lab took another run at it. This time, authorities compared the results with the surviving brother of Margaret Dodd. It matched. Margie's surviving family members were also shown that ring that had been in an evidence box for 40 years. They recognized it as Margie's engagement ring, part of her wedding set. Just as the FBI didn't think James Henry had anything to do with Margie's kidnapping, after all, he was in Akron living with relatives and going to work every day, West Virginia authorities also aren't presuming Henry had anything to do with her death. Her case is still active, and the Raleigh Sheriff's Office has made public pleas for new information. Captain Lilly said he hopes witnesses who were once loyal to Dodd's abductors, whoever they were, might have had a change of heart more than 40 years later. Circumstances change in people's lives, he told a reporter from the Beckley Register-Herald. Hopefully, these people will reconsider now. I'm sure somebody knows something. Maybe with these changes... They'll be more willing to come forward than they were in 1977. Anyone with information, no matter how small, call the Raleigh Sheriff's Office at 304 255 9300 or leave an anonymous tip with Crime Stoppers at 304 255 STOP. Sheriff Ann Meter said, This is about Margie Dodd and trying to get her some justice. A lot of people think if it's been almost 40 years, they think there's no way the police can solve this. That's not true. These cases can be worked and they can be solved.
1: All right. Well, let's see what our armchair detective has to say.
0: It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
2: Well, tonight we have Leslie Rarick from Akron, Ohio. Hi, Leslie. Hey, Paula. This is your third time. You're an official correspondent for (laughs) us now. I always love coming back. Thank you. Well, thanks for being back. And tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your really cool Facebook page. Sure. Um, I have a Facebook
4: page called Akron Noir Alley where we... know discuss stories like uh cold cases from akron you know just different mysteries surrounding the city and uh, anyone's welcome to submit a story and you know i'll prove it and you know, keep this thing going, but yeah, I love running the site
2: and tell us a little bit about your history because you had a had a job or still have a job where you did background checks on people right so that's
4: that's right, yeah, I work in the background check uh, screening industry, and I've been there about eight years now, and I love it. It's public records, so you know I just I love the company and I, I love where I work and all my coworkers so uh, but I, I try to parlay those those skills you know on when i get home into my hobby which is you know researching these stories trying to look you know for missing persons in akron i always scan you know the over 30 days missing page at with the
2: akron police department yeah so now you found this one i hadn't even heard of this till you told me about it how did you learn about it (sighs)
4: <sighs> I was I was looking for something else in the Akron Beacon Journal archives, and then I just ran across it, and I started reading it, which is. How um, many of the stories come to me? I'm looking at something else or for some other information, and boom, there's something there's on another the front headline, page. and you're like, wait a minute, <laughs> right. what's
2: this? Right? Wow, I was shocked that I hadn't heard of it because I was still working at the Beacon when these stories were running. So yeah. obviously, I just it went yeah, straight over my head. It's
4: and with recent developments, it's com- it's complicated. It's a
2: right. complex story with you know many many layers over many years. I think the first question I want to ask is maybe the one that just rises to the top. Um, James Hendry, Mm -hmm. the FBI says he didn't have anything to do with her actual abduction, that he was just uh, taking advantage of the situation. How do you feel about that? I'm
4: not convinced. I'm not
2: convinced because
4: Margie Dodd's parents seemed very, their last names were the Horns, but they were very convinced that there were two callers. And those recorded, um, the FBI recorded the calls coming from the extortionists, and they sent them to the crime lab. I have no idea what those results are, but they were positive there was a West Virginian accent caller, then an African American caller and they were working together. And actually um, one of the phone calls, uh, Margie's mother asked Joe Bob, which would have been the West Virginian accent caller, what her daughter was wearing when she was missing. And he replied some funny shoes, funny looking shoes. And at the time she wore cork platform shoes. Now, it's, if it's a hoax, if it's an extortion you know, plot that came after the, the fact, and it was someone who didn't have her at all or have any information, how would they know that? Why would they tell that?: Was to that the reported
2: in the media before? I mean, could, could he have read about that, or was that not even reported?
4: <sighs> I didn't see any reports of what she was wearing in those early articles.. Um, just the car she was driving, just about the contents of her purse, um, you know, falling out after she was forced into the car. But I never saw any, I, there might have been a description of like the top, the color of her top or her pants, but not the shoes.
2: I think the shoes were reported later when they found the body, mm-hmm. years, years later. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I didn't remember seeing anything about her wearing a particular style of shoe when she went missing. Uh-huh. Let me ask you this because he had a job uh-huh. uh, in yeah. Akron. He was working. His family seemed to be pretty convinced there's no way he could have slipped away to another state to murder a woman and come back. Right? If he was involved in this case, would he have just been a conspirator on this as opposed to actually being present during the abduction, or do you think he might have actually gotten to West Virginia to participate in No, the abduction? I don't think he
4: participated in the abduction. I think he was a co conspirator. He yeah. was out looking for a money order. You know, the night of the night he was he was killed by the FBI agents. He was out looking for a money order. And I feel like, you know, he had a a co-conspirator and and somehow there was going to be a transaction. He he thought he would get the money Uh, that obviously that obviously that didn't work out for him. Most of the money was marked anyways by, you know, FBI. But, yeah, I
2: think you make a really convincing argument.
4: I I feel they, you know, they had um, made a point to say in the media that his former cellmate, you know, he was incarcerated, was from West Virginia, and yes, he learned a lot about West Virginia from this individual. But you never know. I mean, I'm sure they looked at that angle. Could be, you know, complete stranger who abducted her as well. So uh, unrelated to the extortion, maybe Hendry was in charge of the whole thing. Maybe he just um, had someone local in Akron pretend to be Joe Bob, but.
2: Yeah. I I think you're making some good points. What about, there seemed to be a question of how could uh, a car with apparently at least two or more men in it Mm -hmm. have convinced a woman to pull over into that gas station? If she was driving ahead of them, and one argument that her husband had made was that maybe she had actually been abducted mm-hmm. r- as soon as she got out of work in that parking right. lot in the mall parking lot. Right. What do you th- do? You think that's how it would happen? Because I'm having trouble seeing. Another explanation right. for why I would willingly pull over into a closed gas station.
4: Yeah, I wrote that down um, about her being maybe possibly abducted from the mall. And the only thing I can, uh, you know, reason from from that is that you know someone, you know, held her against her will at gunpoint or something. It got her in the car, and then like it was a planned, premeditated attack. And then either they had a person waiting at the gas station or they had left their car there and you know got a ride to the mall or walked to the mall and then abducted her but I don't don't know it doesn't then why take her to the gas station and you know move her to the car it just seems like a very odd place to move a person from one car to the other car like right on the highway where people are passing by and I mean there were several witnesses to the abduction right. so maybe someone followed her and maybe she had a flat tire well no they would have known that too <laughs> just, just throwing out ideas sure but um,
2: yeah yeah it's very odd uh, now when they found her body I was really stunned that they didn't immediately think of her they found a body they found a skeleton mm-hmm. And there is nothing that I've read in the papers that suggested that she came to mind, Mm -hmm. that they were comparing the skeleton to a couple of other people. It's in the same county where she went missing. And it was only, I think, what, maybe 16 years earlier. It wasn't ancient history. Mm -hmm. Did it surprise you that they didn't immediately connect this body on Bolt Mountain with her?
4: Yeah, it's it was very much a surprise when I read that. I know that several people um there were several a lot of rapes and um disappearances at the time around, you know, that 1977, those late 70s in that area. So they I mean, they may not have known who it was. I mean, they have so many people to look at, but um They tried, I think it was 2007, they did go in for, they had a DNA test done on, you know, on the, um, whatever they could find on the, you know, the her bones, and it was, it came back as inconclusive, so they weren't able to even identify her by then. Um, but yeah, if they had just taken photos of the rings and, um, what, the clothing she was wearing and, and disseminated
2: that... Uh, yeah, yeah like I mean, help, they help, help us, us that, ID
4: this person,
2: right? And they yeah. found her in '93, and it's not until I was just looking. Actually, it was 2004 that they first started looking at this DNA sample. I found no indication that between '93 and 2004 that it ever occurred to them that mm-hmm. it might be Margaret Dodd, right?
4: If they had. Put that in in a newspaper, in the surrounding areas. Can anybody identify these personal effects? I'm sure, you know, Ken, Mr. Dobb would have seen that,
2: immediately recognized it. Now, I didn't mention it, but did you run across the story? Apparently, her husband, in recent years, has Uh tried suing the county for bungling uh, this case mm-hmm. and I'm wondering I, I couldn't find an actual account of the lawsuit yeah. that he filed but I wondered if it had something to do with the fact that it just took them so long to even begin looking at her mm. as the potential identity for the woman on Bolt Mountain
4: right yeah I, I didn't have any luck locating any information either but yeah I can I can see his frustration you know I can feel that and I, I, hopefully someone out there knows maybe they've seen the case and can uh i eliminate wonder where they stuff. got
2: that dna sample from i mean all they had was a skeleton
4: what? well i know I'm they gonna... had i f- i think i feel like i read there was mitochondrial dna left which could mean you know dog hairs or some kind of hairs that they found maybe in the fabric of the clothing so okay minuscule
2: but maybe in the future maybe something will yeah match. yeah exactly so, I don't know, what do you think? Did they bungle this investigation?
4: I feel like it was a matter of different agencies maybe not talking to each other, you know, maybe not having the the, the staff to go in and, and really dive into these cases. And I, hopefully this is a learning experience for them, this case, and that they can you know move forward and and I know at the same time when this was going on they had found there was another body found of a woman who was also from that late period of the 70s and I think they they thought that was Margaret for a while and then they discovered it was this other woman then they started to connect two and two and they figured out that Bolt Mountain woman was uh was in fact Margie. But her husband said once they showed him, the uh, law enforcement showed him the photos of the ring, um, at the rest of the jewelry she had on, the clothing, he said it took him three seconds to identify that it was her. And he also said in an, in an interview that there were many missed
2: opportunities. So if they had shown him that stuff... Nine years no, eleven years earlier mm-hmm. that part of the case would have been solved in three seconds.
4: Right. Or just put it put it in the newspaper. And look, you know, can anyone identify these are these they they've done that with Doe's before, you know, things that have been found on, you know, Jane and John Doe's. They you know, put pictures out in the paper and uh, up on the websites and and uh they should have done that. Doesn't make much sense. I
2: I don't know. I've talked about it before, but it just seems to me like in the 70s and 80s, I don't want to paint law enforcement all with one broad brush stroke, but Mm -hmm. I just feel like women who went missing or were raped back in those days, just those cases were not taken as seriously as they needed to be. Mm -hmm. I, I just get this feeling that they were a nuisance mm-hmm. you know oh, another woman's gone missing you know right well they know.
4: had that there was that mentality then and, and still to a certain degree today that you know adult it's an adult they have the right to disappear on their own if they don't want to be found that's their you know prerogative and I think that's what happened with a lot of those cases so they just well, they saw they had so many people Leave you know, leaving their families, and and then they would come back. So they,
2: I don't think they knew which
4: ones were real and which ones weren't.
2: But when yeah. I read about the witnesses who saw, particularly that one guy who actually saw her being abducted mm-hmm. and forced into the car, you know, I guess I can understand. I mean, if you're alone and it appears there are two or three people that are abducted, what can you do mm-hmm. personally? but it 's so frustrating because it 's like you feel like there's there was somebody in a position to intervene in some way, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they felt helpless to do anything but just call police and wait for police yeah. to arrive and I just want to say i don 't know can you just like follow the car or, I know you know I go know. up and lay on the horn or just
4: imagine how you know terrifying that must be i mean the one of the the witnesses also had his young daughter with him, who was also. A witness to it, and she had been she was hypnotized later on to try to help identify the features of the suspect, which she claimed looked like the fawns. But uh, it was a guy who he had on jeans and um, either a leather jacket or a black jacket and hair slicked back. And
2: she described him as looking like the Fonz. The Fonz. Oh my gosh. And then there was the one guy, he had his wife and two kids in the car. And Mm I, you're certainly not going to put them in harm's way. They got
4: to a phone as soon as they could. And, you know, you've read how quickly law enforcement arrived. It was like, within 15 minutes right
2: right and um for all the good it did because man and they went out went and so looked long.
4: they looked and looked ken dodd went out and looked with the police and they every car that fit the description they would follow up on and they did that till drove around till about four in the morning you know looking for a suspect and or looking for margie and they just fell flat so they couldn't find her
2: well, all we can hope for now is that someday that minuscule sample of DNA they have will someday solve this puzzle.
4: Yeah, I'm I'm interested in um, learning, you know, about the case. I heard they reopened it at one point, and uh, maybe that was when they finally identified her, I, I think. And, um, yeah, I, I'd like to know if they found a cause of death or were able to determine a cause of death and... Uh,
3: Conflicted, a history podcast is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
0: The Battle of Waterloo was one of the most famous turning points in world history. But what happened next... My name's David Montgomery, and I'm the host of The SIECLE, a history podcast that tackles exactly that. Join me as I cover France's overlooked century in between Napoleon and World War I. The SIECLE, spelled S-I-E-C-L-E, is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and can be found wherever you get podcasts.
2: Yeah, we, know. we did not see that in mm-hmm. any of the articles. Yeah, that hasn't been released unless uh i guess you know if there's a bullet or a knife that struck a bone you Mm -hmm. know hopefully that would give some indication but if it's strangling uh, that that might be harder to find to Mm -hmm. determine if all you've got left is the skeleton
4: yeah yeah sometimes it is it's really interesting to me that, that henry would just do this on his own though i mean i can i can understand you know seeing a quick dollar signs but i mean you like you said he had everything going for him he had the job at gojo like he was out of prison he was helping his family he seemed to be doing good and it's just strange to me that he would have took it upon himself to
2: i'm i think you'd make a really good argument that he knew the killer because and it might have been a coincidence it might have been that the killer Killed her, and then found out later she was from yeah. Akron, and said, "Oh my gosh, I served with a guy. I mean, I was in jail with a guy. Maybe we can get some money off of her parents. Well, Let me give yeah. him a call, and he might have been brought in, you know, after the fact." But. Oh, another thing
4: they did—the law enforcement—they recreated. They tried to recreate the abduction. They like used different color lights outside the gas station, um, and there were there was actually another caller. It was Jeter and Joe Bob called three days after the parents did the Akron Beacon Journal article. And then Joe Bob said he killed Jeter and he took Margie and he had Margie. And then Jimmy, who was was actually Hendry, James Hendry, was the other caller. So there were like
2: three different
4: personalities. Mm Mm-hmm.
2: Well, Leslie, thanks, as always, for joining us. You always have uh, new information to share with us, and I love that. I'm glad to be back. We'll have you back again, I'm sure.
4: Excellent. Thank you so much, guys.
1: That's it for tonight, campers. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and all of our episodes, just head on over our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured musical artist, Paula.
2: That would be Gretchen Plus, a Cincinnati native currently settled in Akron. Gretchen is an active performer, so visit her website, gretchenplus.com, and click on the Shows tab to see where you can catch her in person. You can also follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.
1: You'll find links to Gretchen and all of our previous featured musical artists on our website. But right now, turn up the volume, close your eyes, and enjoy Gretchen's original song, Daughter of the Broader Skies. And we'll see you back here next week for another Ohio Mystery.
5: i